We're starting a new series uh, on the life of David. And I'm really excited about it. By the way, next week, Carla Edwards will explain to us, share with us, how she came up with this artwork for our current study. So Carla, in case you didn't know, she's like incredibly gifted by God artistically. And so she's, uh, she's doing our our slides for the sermon series. So I kind of let her know what we're doing and, and she puts it together. And so uh, love this one. I think it's just beautiful. And she's going to share from her heart next week on, on uh, how she came about with that. So we're, we're going to spend this semester in the life of David. Um, it's interesting. I think I, I read there are like about 3,000 uh, bio, bio, biographical characters in the scriptures. And uh, David's life is covered more than any other person except God himself. About over 140 chapters are devoted to the life of David. Don't fret, we won't cover all 140 plus of those, but we'll cover uh, a lot of them. And, and not just you know a lot of ink, but what that ink portrays to us about the life of David. Like, the scriptures don't hold back on the life of David. The good, the bad, the ugly, like it, David is just exposed to us on the pages. And we'll see that through, uh, through this current semester. You know, he is, he is a man who is as well known for his, you know, tragic failures as much as he is for his incredible triumphs. You know, he, he is a, a man who we will see just joyfully singing God's praises but also a man who just weeps deeply before the Lord. And so I am really excited to get into, uh, into this study. He is also, by the way, you might know this, he is the only person in Scripture who is described as a man after God's own heart. So uh, if you found 1 Samuel 16, uh, we're going to pick up there. Um, I really do encourage you. I know like I'm old school. I used to paper Bible and you might not be. And that's cool if it works for you. I'd encourage you to pick up a paper Bible and start bringing it. Because I'm going to, you know, I will occasionally like encourage you to write stuff. Circle words, write in the margins, whatever. Okay, so maybe you can do that with a Bible app. I don't know because I don't really use my Bible app for that. But uh, yeah, and if you look, especially college students, I know money can be tight. But if you need one, you just let me know and we'll make sure we get you one. Compliments of Alamo Stone, okay? Free food and free Bibles from the Alamo Stone family to you would be, would be excellent. So before we jump right in, if you just want to kind of write in your margins, just sort of an outline of, of David's life in, starting in 16 and, and on through. First um, Samuel 16 through 31, I would describe as David's training. So again, that's First Samuel 16 through 31 is David's training. 2 Samuel 1 through 10 would be David's triumphs. Again, that's 2 Samuel 1 through 10, David's triumphs. And then 2 Samuel 11 through 1 Kings 2 would be David's troubles. So that's a good outline you can have to just write there in your margins. Um, As we approach chapter 16, just a little context. King Saul has been notified that he is going to be removed as king of Israel. And he's given that news from the prophet Saul. Not to be mistaken with the Saul of the New Testament who was originally Paul and became Saul, okay? Um, And so we jump in, we're going to read the first three verses and then we'll chat a little bit. 
Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Now, this is not a trick question. In verse 1, what do we see Samuel doing? He is grieving. Thank you, Ross. Uh, why is he grieving? Saul has been rejected. All right. What do you guys know about Saul? <clears throat> First king of Israel. Absolutely. Very good. Anything else? He was anointed by Samuel. Thank you, Ramsey. Anything? I heard someone over here. He did not listen to God. Yes. Saul was a proud, petty, disobedient king who took advantage of the people who was disobedient to God, and God finally said, that's it, I have rejected you. In fact, Saul tells him in chapter 15 that God has rejected you and will replace you with your neighbor who is better than you. Some harsh words that Samuel spoke to King Saul. So then here's the question, why is, Saul, I mean, why is Samuel grieving over Saul? doesn't exactly tell us. He, he doesn't sound like a wonderful king. He was not. Why would Samuel be grieving? In fact, in the, the Hebrew participle, it says he was in a state of continual, constant grieving. So that there has been some time since he gave him the news, and he is still grieving. I'm going to tell you why I believe it is, and Ramsey referenced it. Because Samuel had this personal investment in Saul. He anointed him, he trained him, he discipled him, and he has failed God and is being removed. There's a personal relationship, even though it ended on really bad terms, that Samuel has invested in Saul. But I think here's the other thing. Even though... Saul was not a good king by any stretch of the imagination. Here's what Samuel knew. He knew Saul. He knew what kind of leader he was. And I think he was afraid of the unfamiliar, the unknown. Just like we all are. God calls us to do something different, to leave what is familiar. And he doesn't always tell us what that is exactly. And so Samuel is a man like us, I believe, who was afraid of the unknown. I think there might be someone here tonight, not that I know any specifics, so I'm not singling you out if you've shared anything with me, but there might be people here tonight who are in that same situation. God has called you to leave your current situation, something that is very comfortable and familiar, even if it's not necessarily good, at least you know what it is. To take a step of faith to trust in him like we just sang. It's one thing to sing it. It's a completely different thing to do it. 
And so Samuel, I believe, is afraid of the unknown. And if that's where you are tonight, let me encourage you with the very words that God encouraged Samuel with in verse 1. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you. I will send you. You see, God might be speaking to you right now or, or leading up to tonight to leave an unhealthy relationship, to choose a different field of study or a different career, or maybe it is literally to go somewhere away from San Antonio. And you have to take that first step of faith. I can share with you tonight, and I have shared uh, at least a couple of these with you, some times where God spoke to my heart that I needed to leave what was comfortable, what I was holding on to, and to trust him. The first time I was about 21 years old, maybe, God called me back to relationship with him. I start learning what it's like to walk with the Lord every day. But I've been dating this girl for almost three years. And it's an unhealthy, sinful relationship. And the Lord spoke to me and said, you need to end this. And I remember just weeping. Not so much about necessarily losing her, although that definitely caused me some pain, but the fear of, but God, what if I never meet anyone as good as her? That was a real fear that I had in my life at that time. But by the grace of God, that relationship ended and Five years later, I met the most amazing, wonderful, compassionate, godly woman I have ever met. Y'all know her. Then there was the time that God called me out of being a school teacher. It was the only job I knew after college for 13 years. I'm working at the same school. And I loved it, those troublemaking kids I taught at an alternative school. And one day God just said, Wes, I'm calling you out of that. The end of the school year came and I did not have a job. But I turned in my resignation. We had a four-year-old girl and a newborn baby boy. And no health insurance. And enough money in the bank to last us the summer. And just when the school year was getting ready to start up, and I thought, man, I have really made a mistake. Lord, I thought you were telling me to leave that behind. God provided a job for me in the corporate world, which is nothing to like get all excited about. Trust me. Some of y'all are living that, right? But it's a, it's a corporate environment where it emphasizes being politically correct. And what that means, if you don't know, is, is so if you're going to talk about faith and there are two prevailing opinions that are promoted. One is there just is no God. It's kind of like the college campus. There is no God. Or two, all paths lead to the same God. And while that's not always the easiest place to work, there are 
countless opportunities that God has given me to speak his name and to speak truth to people at work who need to hear it. And trust me, it's been rejected numerous times. And then we're living in just, please do not hold the fact that we lived in South Carolina against us. It was just for a year and it was right below the border of North Carolina. Any South Carolinians in here? Okay. But we were there. My family was there in North Carolina. I'm working for the bank. And God clearly called us to San Antonio, Texas, where we knew not a soul. No friends, no family, nothing. But we knew God had a plan for us. And so we packed up our kids who were seven and three at the time and moved more than halfway across the country to San Antonio, Texas. Because in 1993, God spoke clearly to me and said, Wes, you will pastor a church one day. And it happened in 2012 right here at Alamo State. Now listen, those are just three examples of when God called me to do something that was unknown, uncomfortable, unfamiliar. And I and my family and I obeyed. I am not in any way trying to pat myself on the back because here's the truth. I'm sure there are a lot more times than that where God called me to do something I did not want to do and I did not do it. I was too afraid. But here's the truth. I don't remember any of those times. And do you know why? Because, it, when it, because I was not obedient, I don't have a testimony. I don't have a story to tell of how faithful God was. You see, when God calls us to do something, to take a step of faith and follow him and to trust in him, and we do it, only then do we have a testimony of how good God is. And so I just want to encourage you tonight, if that is where you are, to absolutely trust in him and to walk in obedience. So in verse 2, Samuel kind of snaps out of his state of grief and, and says, hey man, but I'll go, but Saul's going to kill me. And so the Lord says, well, okay, well, do this. Don't go tell them the real primary reason you're going. Instead, go and offer a sacrifice to me. And so, and he's not being like, they're, they're, that's not being dishonest. It would be like this, college students. Let's say you were living it up like partying in high school. You came to San Antonio, UTSA. You go to this thing called Fresh and Moving. You meet some amazing people who are just excited for God. They share the gospel with you and you place your faith in Christ. And now you are a new creation. But God has put on your heart one of your friends from back home that you used to go get wild with. And so this semester you're going to be praying for that person. And then all of a sudden you're going home for Christmas break. And you know what? I want to share Jesus with that person. But you don't tell him right off the bat. You send him a note on Instagram or Facebook or text him, whatever. And you go, hey, I'm going to be home for Christmas. Can we hang out on Saturday night? Right? So you have a 
primary motive and you have a secondary. But you want to get together with that person, but your primary motive is to share the gospel. That's kind of what Samuel's doing here. He has, he has a primary motive to go anoint the next king, but he's not going to reveal that right away. He, he, the Lord gives him a secondary motive for doing that. And by the way, did you notice how little God reveals to Samuel in those first three verses? Go, offer a sacrifice, invite Jesse, because one of his sons will be the next king. Like, that's it. He doesn't know which one. He doesn't know how long it's going to take before this guy assumes the throne. He doesn't know how we're going to get rid of Saul. Nothing. Just go. Because that's how God works a lot of the times. He won't show you step two until you take step one. So I'm going to tell you tonight, you need to go ahead and take step one. Let's pick back up. Verse four. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? I wish I had that impact on people, but that's a, another story. And he said, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So let me stop right there. So what would happen is they would have a, a sacrifice and then there would be a sacrificial meal. So when it, even though it says uh, and invited them, Jesse and his sons, to the sacrifice, to the, yeah, to the sacrifice, what it really means is uh, Samuel invited himself to Jesse's home for the meal. Okay, so that's what we have going on. Verse 6, And it came about when they entered that he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at, the, at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. It's really interesting in verses 6 and 7, the oldest comes out, Eliab. And Samuel, without hearing from God, says, there he is. That's got to be the guy. Why did he think that? It, uh, that's not a trick question. It actually tells us. Why does he think that? What is it about Eliab that impresses Samuel? His height. Yeah, it's his height. Which seems kind of silly. But does anyone know like why that sounds familiar? Like the next king would be a tall man? Saul was tall. You think Procter and Gamble just came up with the name head and shoulders for their shampoo? It's biblical. Scripture tells us that Saul stood head and shoulders above the rest. And just like we are prone to do, Samuel is set forth on a different direction, a different path, and, but he sees what is comfortable and familiar, and he thinks that must be where God's, what God has chosen. I don't know if y'all know this, but have y'all ever read like studies on 
the height of men in the corporate world? Yes, higher paying and positions of leadership. I want to say I read somewhere like the average height of the CEO in America is like six foot three. And they've done studies like where they've, they've brought people in and, and had an audience that didn't know anything about the person and like they asked them questions. Well, what do you think about so-and-so, this person? And here's what's really fascinating. Without ever having any conversations, tall men are perceived to be leaders. They, they think tall men, and I think that's why they're hired into positions, right? Because there's just this perception that if you're a tall guy, you're a leader. Interestingly, tall women are not viewed the same way. It's just men. And scientists believe that it's because subconsciously, when we see a tall guy who can physically reach greater heights and have greater line of sight, that we subconsciously take those physical attributes and, and apply them to his leadership style. Oh, he can, he, he's a go-getter. He can achieve more than other people can. And he must have a great vision for where this company should go. In fact, without, without even talking to these tall men that they would bring in, they were viewed as being more charismatic than men of average height. So, we can't really fault Samuel for having that assumption because apparently that's just human nature, that we see a tall guy and we think that that, must, he, that dude, he's going to lead us. But God corrects him in verse 7 and says, Man, I do not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. What a great, like that's underlined in that, the second half of that verse is underlined in my Bible, and I would encourage you to underline it as well. Because it is such a common mistake that is made even within the church. You get a guy who's tall and handsome, like he has these physical attributes, maybe he looks like he has money, whatever, and we just naturally want to put that guy up in front of people. We want people in a church who can draw a crowd. Or on campus, people who can draw a crowd. Because in our human, sinful, you know, earthly perception, we think numbers mean success. So God corrects Samuel's logic there. Verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he went and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, meaning redheaded, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. What a beautiful scene this is. Do you have any more sons? Is this, is this it? And he's thinking, I'm sure, because God hasn't spoken positively of any of these seven. Do you have any more? And Jesse says, well, yeah, there is the youngest, but he's out taking care of the sheep. 
after Samuel and Sissy brings him in, and I love the description of David, which, look, we're talking about, you know, tall, good-looking men. It doesn't say David Saul, but he's a good-looking man. It says he has beautiful eyes. He has hair, which is a knock against him, I think, but he has beautiful eyes, and he's handsome. So the youngest comes in and gets anointed in front of his father and brothers who did not even bother to bring him in initially. I just, I love how we get introduced to David. And it is a beautiful picture of God's grace. And that's what, that's my prayer for what we, as we study the life of David, I, I pray that we will learn and understand more about David, but even more so understand and learn about the God of David, who is a God of infinite grace. And we get a first glimpse of it in David's life right here. How so? David's going to be the next king. But look at him. Like if, you're, if you are really going to pick the next king, you are not picking David. Let's be real. We're not. I'm, I don't just mean you. But we. Why not? One, he's too poor. His family, it, like they make their living off a of sheep, which is one of the poorest occupations you could have at the time. And there are other indicators that he came from a poor family. We're told that the, the flock itself was small. His brother references that. We'll see that, I think, next week or in two weeks. We see their poverty in the gifts that his father, Jesse, gives to two leaders. He gives like uh, 10 cuts of cheese and, and some grain and wine, which back then you would bestow prominent people with the most extravagant gifts you could afford. But what Jesse gives are very common, ordinary, everyday items. So David is too poor. He is too inexperienced. You guys know the, like the one big event or the first big event that happens in David's life, which we'll get to, I think, in two weeks. But what we don't know, so we know it's coming, but what we don't know is that like, while this is happening, there is a Philistine army that has gathered. They are locked, loaded, and ready for war. They are taunting God's army. And the current king is too afraid to fight. What Israel needs is a military commander, and God chooses a guy who plays the harp. He has no military training. He's too poor. He is too inexperienced. And he is too young when he does offer to king saul let me go take that dude on what does saul what does saul say you you can't go fight him you are too young and he is too insignificant even to his own family because here's the deal church samuel is a prophet and priest he is the most significant spiritual leader of the day. And he comes to Jesse's home. David does not even get told to come inside and say hello by his dad and brothers. In fact, look back at verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? 
And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Period. End of quotation marks. Do you hear what's missing? Let me send for him. Eliab, go get David and bring him in. No. Period. End of sentence. End of the answer. I think there's this awkward pause, just like there was just now between us. Until Samuel insists, because look at what he says. Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. See, I, I think that David is too poor, he's too inexperienced, he is too young, and he is too insignificant, even by his own family's standards, especially his own dad. And I might be reading too much into that one verse, but I really don't think so. You name whatever pastor you admire the most, and if he's coming to your house, you bring in, you bring in everyone. Certainly family. And David is left outside to watch the sheep. And in all his psalms, David never, ever once references his dad. He does his mom twice. Calls her a handmaid of the Lord. So whatever God has called you to, whatever he is calling you out of that comfortable situation. Do not doubt these things. Is your family and you too poor? Are you, do you think you're too inexperienced and too young? Are you even not valued by your own family? Do you look at God and go, do you know who you're talking to? You can't be talking to me, God. That was my experience back in 93 when the Lord spoke to me and said, Wes, you will pastor a church one day. I stopped in my tracks. Y'all know this story, but got a few new people here. And I said, just what I just, I said, Lord, what? Are you talking to me? Like, do you, do you know who you're talking to? Because you cannot be talking to me. I'm just a young, punk, 20-something-year-old from Podunk, North Carolina. I don't come from a godly heritage, not at all. I come from a broken, dysfunctional, alcoholic family. I'm the youngest of three boys. And I was very clear as a kid, and I was not the favorite. Do you know who you're talking to? God. So if, if that's where you're at, if you just think you are not qualified, then I hope this word encourages you because David has none of the qualifications that anyone walking this earth would look for to be the next king of Israel. But here's the truth, church. He is not just the next king of Israel. He is the greatest king to have ever sat on any throne save the Lord Jesus Christ.
So be encouraged by that. And let me tell you this too. Maybe you did take a step of faith and it's been some time and, and whatever you believe God has called you to has not happened yet. I want to encourage you to be patient. It was 19 years from the day God said you will pastor church one day. 19 years before y'all voted me in as pastor here at Alamosta. And guess what? David anoints, um, Samuel anoints David in verse 13. It will be 15 long, hard years before David assumes the throne of Israel. My 19 years are the same as David's 15 because God will prepare him for that day. So if you are looking at your life, you're going, but God, I did this and you have not fulfilled your promise. Church, the Lord is always faithful. And understand, he's just doing a work in you to get you ready. So let's pray. Father God, you are good. You have called us to a greater purpose than just to live our lives each day and focused on meeting our, our physical needs. God, you've created us in your image to bring you glory. And God, I just pray, Lord, that your word spoke to the hearts of those who are sitting here tonight who are struggling, knowing that you've called them to something better than what they've got right now. But there is that fear of letting go of what is familiar And walking into the unknown. There is that fear of trusting in you. Of walking by faith and not by sight. So God we thank you that you are a God who can be trusted. And I pray not only for the individuals here. But as a church body Lord. I pray that we would trust in you. And take steps of faith that you've called us to. It is in Jesus name that we pray. Amen.